0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to LSE for this hybrid event. We are happy to have so many of you here in the room. We're also happy to have others joining us online. Uh, My name is Kathy Hostetler and I'm professor and head of department in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I'm very pleased to be here to welcome, as I said, both our online audience and our audience here in the Sheikh Zayed Theater today. Our speaker today is Dr. Gregory Chin, who will be speaking on China's global rise, the renminbi, and the making of an international currency. Oh, Oh, do I have to, oh. Yeah, no worries. I saw that, but I thought thought that the request to unmute was, um, anyway. You know how one is about zoom these days but should i go ahead and yeah. all right so anyway i'm very pleased to be here to welcome both our online audience and our audience here in the Sheikh zayed theater today our speaker today is dr gregory chin who will be speaking on china's global rise the renminbi and the making of international currency for those twitter users the hashtag for today's event is hashtag lse renminbi and so you know this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to other technical difficulties beyond the one that we've already had tonight of me not unmuting myself for the online audience. Dr. Chin is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at York University in Canada. His research interests are in international and comparative political economy with a focus on China, Asia, the BRICS, international money, finance, and global governance. His research on China, the Asian Asian region and world order started in the early 1990s, so he's been at this longer than many people have been interested in this topic, and now spans four decades. He has published widely on the political economy of China and international money and finance, including recently U.S. financial warfare on China, geopolitics in Hong Kong as international financial center, and Canada amid the US-China trade war. Dr. Chin co-directs the emerging global governance project with Global Policy Journal, and has been a board member of the journals Review of International Political Economy, Global Governance, and Journal of East Asian Studies. Among many, many other roles from 2000 to 2006, Professor Chin served in the Government of Canada in its Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, the Canadian International Development Agency, and the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. This year, Dr. Chin is also the visiting Mailing Birney Global Scholar in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics. This program honors late faculty member doctor Mailing Mei-Ling Birney who studied local elections and decentralization in China during her time as an assistant professor in the department. We are grateful to Dr. Birney's family who provided funds to promote consideration of greater China and the region's role in international development and has made Dr. Chin's visit and this talk possible. Dr. Chin will speak for about 45 or 50 minutes and then we will open the floor for questions, making time for both those in the room and those participating online. For our online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen at any time. Questions will be submitted to myself, and I'll be asking the questions then, taking a set of questions from the room, followed by a set of questions online, and rotating back and forth. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni, so please let us know who you are. For those of you here in the theater, I will let you know when we will open the floor for questions. If you can raise your hand and then when I indicate, you may press, uh, I guess there are only buttons on the table in the front, um, but they will, you will bring a microphone around um, for those questions. And I will also ask you to provide your name and affiliation before posing your question, if you, if you will. But for now, I'm delighted to hand over to Dr. Chin for this talk on um, China's global rise, the renminbi and the making of an international currency. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Chin.
1: It's okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kathy, for that warm and um, kind uh, introduction. I'm very happy to be here at the LSE in London uh, to see you again. We're longtime friends, and and, um, I'm very honored um, to be here. Um, Thank you, everyone, for coming this evening for this talk. Kind of a bit of a gloomy, rainy day. And so it's not easy to stay late into the evening for an academic talk but I thank you very much for coming. I'd like to thank the LSE, um, the Department of International Development, uh, the Mayling Bernie um, Fellowship for this wonderful opportunity. Um, I put together a presentation today um, and I've been working on this topic for almost a decade and I'm close to finishing a book uh, and I just, uh, yeah, I want I I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about um, some of this research that I've been working on, and uh, I very much look forward to your comments and uh, and if you have any questions, criticism, uh, as well. Um, Kathy, if you can let me know maybe as my time, if I'm <laughs> mismanaging, you can let me know. Um, I might just sorry I should have brought a glass of water with me. I, I may I'll bring one of us. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Um, so let me just start here. Uh, So, the the talk uh, for this evening is the remedy and the making of an international currency. Thank you, Kathy. If you'll allow me, I'll just take a moment um, to remember Mei-Ling Bernie. I didn't know Mei-Ling Bernie personally, but I understand that Mei-Ling was much loved by her students, her colleagues, her friends, her family. I know that Mei-Ling was an accomplished scholar Of comparative politics of China. I knew her through her work, her writing. Her work examined local politics in China, the politics of decentralization and corruption. Her principal area of research examined the relationship between national and local politicians in China and how local officials responded to the mandates of national party state officials. In her book manuscript, which she was close to finishing. The rule of mandates, governing and misgoverning China. Mei Ling set out the argument that um, China has a rule, quote unquote, rule of mandates, that sets priorities for officials at all levels of government, rather than rule of law or rule by man. So rule of mandates. Um, And she also demonstrated the distinct consequences for economic development and political stability in China that flowed from the rule of mandates. Very innovative research asking the big questions about the politics of China. I understand from Ken Shadlin's words that from her first day, Mei Ling threw herself into her teaching with gusto incorporating her immense knowledge of the Chinese experience into the empirical and theoretical core of the courses that she was teaching, that she reconceptualized at the LSE the government and governance modules away from a static sectoral analysis in favor of a dynamic approach focusing on institutional transformation. What changes in China, what doesn't change institutionally? That mailing quickly became a pillar of the program, much sought after for her insight and the warmth and grace with which she received students and colleagues alike. I'm very honored to give the inaugural Mailing Bernie Memorial Lecture, and I thank the Bernie family and the colleagues and students at the LSE for this opportunity. Today, the way I've organized my talk and the way I've organized my book is to try to think through the main analytics. Of the question of REM and B internationalization. Today, I've organized my talk into about three sections, four sections. I'm gonna start by talking about world order changes and the fracturing of the liberal global monetary order. I'll talk about REM and B internationalization, the process to date, the ebb and flow of the process. I'll do some stock taking where are we at with renminbi internationalization i'm going to try to talk about the breakthroughs especially in the preconditions what preconditions the making of an international currency and i'm going to emphasize the the theme of necessity as the mother of invention and growing confidence on the part of the chinese leadership to use china's currency globally As I mentioned, the renminbi has been on a more than a decade journey now of internationalization. And if you've been studying it for a long time, you know that before 2009, the basic policy of the government of China and the party in China was to not not to use the Chinese currency internationally. There was some usage in Hong Kong, but it was very kind of informal. It wasn't official. It was kind of on the side. We can talk about that if you're interested. Um, and then China launched pilot programs to use the international, you know, to use the renminbi cross border. And they talked about cross border use of the renminbi. But they didn't use the term renminbi internationalization till 2014. Because that term, internationalization, there's a kind of purpose of you know, the element to the meaning behind it. And they didn't want to make it look like in the beginning that they were trying to get the you know, REM and B being used internationally. I've been trying to study this process of REM and B internationalization. In other words, the growing international use of the REMB. That's what I mean. The process of the growing international use of the REM and B. The how, the who, why, where, when, prospects and obstacles. My focus is on agency, who's driving the international use of their m and and also structure, the trends, the patterns, the systemic conditions, when agency meets structure, to use social science language. And I'm very much focused on this idea of the making of the international currency. Just last week, I took my family to Cambridge University. We visited the Museum of Zoology, where Darwin's collection is kept. And looking at his work, his kind of forensic work on the origins of the species, I realized where I may be drawing inspiration from in some indirect ways. You know, I'm very much trying to understand this process and evolution, origins, the making of an international currency. Um, One thing that I think is so interesting about looking at this topic now, and I'll talk about the ebb and flow of the analysis of this theme, Renminbi internationalization, is that most recently, in the last couple of months, there's been some very interesting reporting in the Chinese media, the official state media, Xinhua News Agency, about how the Renminbi is seeing strong, growing international use now. And I follow this day by day. Like I follow the Chinese media and the you know, policy announcements very closely day by day. And it was very interesting in October when all of a sudden these statements started coming out. And I know, so you don't have to read this, but I'll just read you some of the statements and I, you'll get a flavor for it. Quote, this is October 11th, 20, 2022. With solid efforts to promote Yuan, that's the renminbi, Yuan internationalization. China has seen a strengthened role of renminbi across the board, from international payments and settlement, investment and financing and reserves to pricing. The People's Bank of China, the country's central bank, published an article Sunday, this was in early October, saying it will steadily advance the currency's internationalization and make it more convenient to use in cross-border trade and investment one of the interesting questions right, and they also talk about with exchange rate you know that basically the RMB is being that there's been remarkable progress so you know and, and they gave um statistics figures right that china's cross-border uh, cross-border rmb receipts and payments in non-banking sectors reached 27 28 trillion RMB from january to august of this year up 15.2% year on year. And they give a number of statistics. Um, world banks, uh, the world central banks holding RMB reserves, how that has gone up. It's risen from 10.92% in 2016 to 12.28% uh, percent in May 2022. So this shows that central banks are starting to hold more RMB. And they talk about, thanks to the opening up of China's financial market, the renminbi is playing a bigger role in investment and in financing. And that the share of securities investment in cross-border RMB receipts and payments increased from about 30% in 2017 to 60% in 2021. And that since 2017, RMB bonds have been included in three bond in- indexes. Finally, the central bank said using the renminbi in neighboring countries they're going to really push for increasing the international use of their RMB in neighboring countries neighboring to China and in belted road countries and that this is injected um, impetus into local development and so one of the questions is to ask and then there's a number of statements about the future right the central bank will strengthen coordination you know, with domestic and foreign currencies and facilitate market entities to use more, promote innovation in RMB cross-border investment and financing, right? And they make a number of states. So one of the interesting questions is like, why? Why all of a sudden this, these statements coming from China, right, about wanting to push the international use of the RMB when they've been so cautious for the past decade about putting out this type of language? Now when they do it, at the same time, they do say, if you look on this slide the last point, in the process of REMB internationalization, China upholds the principle of letting the market be the driver, right? Not just policy led, not just politically orchestrated, but market driven, and that the B internationalization will pursue mutual benefits and win-win cooperation. And so normatively, the Central Bank of China is trying to give a sense of norms. Right, that China is not this radically revisionist actor, and that in internationalizing the RMB, they are playing generally by the rules of the game, right? Market driven process. Um, at the same time, they've made these statements the RMB will inevitably become a global currency as China grows stronger and deepens its reform and opening up, and that. The rising status of the RMB internationally reflects the international community's confidence in China's economic development. Right? And that this process will be long-term and will result in improved national strength of China as well as financial development. So one of the interesting questions, why, why these types of statements at this time? And to what degree are those statements accurate of the situation of RMB internationalization? And here, today, and in my work, I, I emphasize that there's a need to take a deep dive into what is actually going on. So much of my research in the past decade on this topic, I've, I've talked to central banks around the world, I've talked to banks around the world, I've talked to companies who are using the renminbi, not only Chinese companies, but international companies, and to find out, and. Companies of different size. What's going on? Why the use of? Why are they interested in the use of remb? And, and what are the prospects and limits of their interest? At the same time, I think this type of research, where you take the process seriously of remb internationalization, also pushes us beyond the conventional wisdom on how to study Rem&B internationalization. And by this, I mean, how do I put this delicately? the scholarship that was published often 5 years after remb b internationalization started so some of the research that was published around 2015 2016 in the field often coming from prominent us based economists and the approach that was taken by those scholars and those economists and economic historians tended to be one where they took the world order as constant unchanging right that basically we were in a a world um, the world order that we've known largely since world war ii and where the united states is a central actor and the dollar is the major currency right so the dollar order they tended to take that as a given and then they would look at the various functions of an international currency and say well to what degree does the remedy match up And of course there was often the comparison to the US dollar. Doesn't look like the US dollar, right? More controls, um, a more restricted exchange rate, right? not as open capital markets, a central bank that's not as independent as let's say the US Federal Reserve, lacking checks and balances in the political system, therefore questions of confidence of other users. And in particular, the con- the concession that was made by that scholarship was well, maybe the RMB can play a role as a trade currency, you know, to facilitate a trade and exchange, but not really play a se- cannot really play a serious role as a store of value, so stocks, bonds, you know, and from the uh, from a, a private use standpoint, but also official reserve currency, and so the thought was that China had very serious limitations and obstacles in those areas and what i would say is that a lot of that literature had a kind of ahistorical quality to the analysis and part of that would be opening up instead not necessarily using the us dollar as the standard but even if you used like the british pound from 150 years ago 100 years ago you'd find a different perhaps story about prospects and limits right, where the pound actually main role was about trade finance, right, and so it's not insignificant if an international, if a currency can be used for trade purposes, right, it's not just important only if it's used for finance and investment, and so internationally, and so there was a certain kind of a historical quality to the analysis, and also a kind of almost ideational bias, right, about the standard against which the RMB should be judged. And part of this is that this research tries to drill beyond that and say that one of the most interesting things about studying RMB internationalization at this current moment is I would advance the proposition that we're seeing at least the beginning of a move to a more diversified global monetary system where the US dollar, the Euro, And other currency options where there's a greater mix of currencies involved. If you push the argument further you could argue that we're potentially at the beginning of the fracturing of the global liberal monetary order that we've known since the end of World War II and and really is taking shape especially in the last three decades. Why do I say this? One is I think we see, to some degree, the weaponization of the U.S. dollar and the dollar payment system. We've seen actions where there's been a freezing of the foreign exchange reserves of countries that are deemed hostile within the system. This raises questions for countries around the world. Is there a safe haven for their national reserves, right? If the U.S. Fed or the Bank of England all of a sudden deny countries access to their reserves this raises questions about safe haven. If you look at the United States U.S. Fed and its management of inflation right we're all dealing with inflation right now and you look at the interest rate hikes in the United States. And how this has an impact on strengthening the value of the U.S. dollar. Those actions may be positive for the United States, but they raise issues for others around the world, their currencies. As the US dollar strengthens significantly, what happens to others' currencies? The exchange rate mismatch, as they call it. Developing countries have long talked about this idea of when you borrow in US dollars, there's always this inherent risk that if all of a sudden the value of U.S. dollar goes up significantly, then your cost of borrowing goes up significantly. But now it's not just developing countries. G7 countries have to also deal. Canada, where I come from, we're neighbor to the United States, we look at the strength in U.S. dollar, we also have to respond to it. China's former central bank governor, Zhou Xiaotuan, wrote about this in 2009, going into the G20 summit in London if you remember back to 2009 to the global financial crisis He talked about this Triffin dilemma. In other words, we live with an international monetary system Where the US dollar he didn't name the US dollar but he said where there's a one currency that's predominant that everyone relies on for global liquidity But only one country controls the supply in, you know of that currency manages that has direct management over that currency and when that country does things that it's are in its interests they may or may not have positive impacts for everyone else and others end up potentially bearing heavy costs and I think that's what we're seeing now is that these questions that Robert Triffin raised raised they're coming back and so what I'm saying is that I think we're At the beginning of a scenario where there are questions about stable liquidity for world trade and investment stable borrowing costs globally and the question of safe havens as countries manage their national wealth what's the safety stability and even-handedness of the existing international monetary system and it's not just russia north korea iran turkey China, who's asking these questions? If you study Asia, for example, the ASEAN plus three, right? The ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia, the 10 countries of the ASEAN region, plus China, Japan, South Korea, they have something called the Chiang Mai Initiative, a reserve, a regional reserve basket where they help each other in case one of them faces a major debt crisis where they can't pay off their international debt those countries and that grouping has been asking questions about safe haven what do we do in the future right so malaysia thailand singapore indonesia they've all you know they've all raised these questions right how safe is the current scenario like this the public goods, global public goods, that have been provided since the end of the Second World War, there seems to be a breaking off from that and a slide into economic warfare. The IMF has issued a number of warnings. So if you're interested, you could see in the last while, right, the chief economist at the IMF, the head of the IMF, they've raised a number of warnings about this fracturing of the international monetary system. In the academic research, Farrell and Newman have written about the weaponization of global interdependence, right, 2019. Dan Dresner, in a piece, Economic Statecraft in the Age of Trump, has written about how the Trump administration were particularly avid practitioners of U.S. sanctions against its allies as well as adversaries. Um, And what I would suggest is that the Trump era, though, is a kind of intensification of trends that were already starting, especially after 9-11. Right, so you can go back 20 years. Juan Zarate has written a book called Treasury's War. He was the Assistant Secretary of the US Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crime and a federal prosecutor during the Bush Jr. administration, and he writes about the US intensifying reliance on financial warfare as foreign policy and he looked at because he was the key one of the key people after 9-11 who figured out how to build the systems to pursue and contain terrorist financing non-state actors but he writes a story of how the US has turned those tools Onto states, states. Right? And so if you look, whether it be Iran, North Korea, Turkey, others, Russia now. The interesting thing is China was only an indirect target of these tools until 2019. Right? If Chinese companies, Huawei, Madam Meng, Meng Wanzhou if they were involved in seen as aiding Iranian companies, they would, there you begin to see the direct targeting of Chinese companies. But up until then, it was kind of indirect. Since 2019, China has become the direct target of these measures. And if you look at it, part of this story is the Trump era economic warfare, U.S., China. And here, we want to look at the period of 2016 to 2020 when Trump was president. In 2018, Trump starts the trade war with China, commercial warfare. And it grows and expands. And it starts spinning off into industrial tech measures as well, tech war. The Biden administration has escalated it further. 2019 and 2020, China passes the national security law, which is then applied to Hong Kong. The Trump administration reacts purportedly in the name of protecting Hong Kong's independence and autonomy, but they start taking actions where they start targeting Hong Kong with a number of measures, removing Hong Kong, from a kind of preferential status, where Hong Kong is treated separately from mainland China, as far as economic and trade relations. And it's fascinating to see what happens. I've just written a paper that was published on this, the intended and unintended consequences of those actions. Um, It didn't quite go as exactly as the Trump administration had hoped, but nonetheless, a number of measures were taken and you don't have to read all this but the US Congress passes a number of acts Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act Trump signs into law in 2019 Congress passes the Hong Kong autonomy act Trump signs it into law also is executive order on Hong Kong normalization so the things we just talked about as part of these laws that the US introduced during the Trump period, Congress and the presidential administration, this opened the door for the US to pursue financial sanctions against Hong Kong and mainland officials and banks that helped them, that handled their transactions in US dollars. And this, and the Trump administration, especially Michael Pompeo, also talks about what are further measures that the US government could take to punish Hong Kong and the banking sector in Hong Kong, the financial sector in Hong Kong. They realize Hong Kong, number three international financial center as far as handling US dollars, it's a key profit center for US companies, for US banks, for UK banks, for EU corporates. and one way to try to send a message to China was via Hong Kong. And the, they talked about even the nuclear option, which was, would be denying banks in Hong Kong and corporates in Hong Kong and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. In other words, the central bank in Hong Kong, access to U.S. dollars, the dollar payment system, right? What has now been basically applied to Russia. They talked about going to take that step. But they were warned by Wall Street and US corporate interests that that would potentially open Pandora's box on things like the future of the US dollar as the global currency and major US corporate interests in Hong Kong. So they didn't go the full nuclear option, but they did target individuals, Hong Kong officials, mainland officials, seen as active involved in undermining Hong Kong's independence and autonomy, and those sanctions were expanded under the Biden administration, and extended and expanded. Um, and these actions, Beijing took notice of them, and they realized, okay, this is now moved from trade war into financial warfare, right, the, what the Americans are, are up to now. Now, some... Just from the standpoint of balance, some could say, well, China, with its industrial policy and China 2025, has been kind of pursuing neo-mercantilist policies for a while under current President Xi Jinping. China's more aggressive, right, And that, you know, China's trying to develop its own indigenous capacities. Um, and one could say, well, they were already engaged in economic warfare. That's what the Trump administration likes to say, right? They, They're not starting, right? The the Trump people said, we're not starting a trade war with China. It's already ongoing, right? Was the U.S. argument on that. But I think you can see here that this is, when you go into the details, this is very conscious action and laws, new laws that were introduced by the U.S. Congress and signed by the president, which are very difficult to undo, right? They're at a level of... um, de jure you know that that it's very it's no longer informal just de facto right this is now official policy and in law for the united states and that is quite serious as far as measures china then has responded with its own anti-sanctions law right and there was talk of implementing in hong kong but then hong kong officials pushed back and said to beijing I don't know if pushback is the right term, but they, behind closed doors, said to leaders in Beijing, the central leadership, this could really affect Hong Kong, could undermine Hong Kong's role as a global financial center and global business hub. And so there's been a a postponement of action on China's anti-sanctions law in Hong Kong. All to say, though, that these actions have all raised the warning bells in Beijing. And they realize they're an extended, probably decade, decade and a half of tension with the United States and where there's going to be competition. And where competition is probably going to be the main trend and hopefully some cooperation along the way (laughs) we hear about climate change, global health pandemics, you know, hopefully for the world's sake but also the Russia-Ukraine and how the US has pursued its, um, if you want to call it nuclear option, vis-a-vis the Russians, and brought the G7 on side in Australia. This has also then um, raised concerns in Beijing. Today it's Russia, tomorrow could be China, and they're already seeing some of it. How has Beijing responded? Part of the response is the need to push the global use of the RMB reduce dollar dependency one of the things about china is it holds this massive at one point it's a four trillion dollar foreign currency reserve of which 75 80 of it was in u.s dollars so china is quite reliant on the u.s dollar for its trade investment and so china has been consciously trying to go through a process of de-dollarization it's not easy though because u.s dollars are the most globally accepted currency. Right? And so it's not an easy thing, but they have been doing it. And if you go into the detail, you can see how they've gone about trying to move their, their reserves and national wealth into other things beyond US dollars. Um, the other thing is that China has pr- uh, promoted the, the shift towards what they call a more diverse, di- diversified international monetary system. And this has actually been ongoing since the late 1990s. China supported the Euro. And especially at the time of the Euro crisis in 2012, when Europe was looking for friends and allies. Um, this was at the time when a lot of the Southern European countries were in the Euro crisis. China was the new friend to the Eurozone and helped um, bolster the Euro in a time of need. And this was noted by the Europeans. the EU and the European countries, the Western European countries. China's also supported this ASEAN plus three, Chiang Mai, this regional um, reserve basket. They've also, China's worked with others to begin looking into building alternative payment systems, right, and they've built their own payment systems for using the renminbi. I'll talk a little bit about that. And the other thing that China's been actively involved in is building central bank digital currency, the digital yuan, or the digital renminbi. And China's not the only one, but China's the the leading national actor. It's in the lead, uh, arguably, uh, on building this digital currency, central bank digital currency, and the electronic payment systems that go with it. But China's also working bilaterally and multilaterally to begin to advance this digital RMB. I mentioned earlier that the RMB, if you think about it, the process the last 10 years, it's been going through kind of ebb and flow. Phase one, the RMB, the initial piloting that I talked about, this is about 2009 to 2014. When China first started to move from pilot programs to regularizing, cross-border use of the renminbi for trade and investment. And the renminbi, starting at a very low base, its growth rate was quite significant, but it was a very low base to start with. Right? And so the focus was not on the volumes, it was really on the rate of growth, how far it could get. But then China hit some road, you know, some bumps in the road in 2015, 2016. And if you remember back to that period, China's capital markets uh, faced some crisis and and instability in 2015, 2016, and it took about two, three years to fully recover from that. In that period, there was less international demand for the RMB, And when I was writing in that period, all of a sudden no one cared about RMB internationalization. which actually gave me a a moment to pause and to actually write things down because they were on such a ferocious pace of launching pilots in those first five years. I said, okay, from a scholar's standpoint, this gives me a moment to breathe. Interestingly, since the recovery of China's capital markets, from 2018, 2019 onwards, we're seeing a third phase now of RMB internationalization. So we can kind of open up the decade and the last, yeah, uh, into three phases. And I think it's useful to kind of think that through. Across the board, so if you look at the theory of international money, scholars tend to think of it, of an international currency as having three main functions, medium of exchange, Store of value and unit of account. If you want, I can go into detail on what these things mean. Medium of exchange usually is about trade, used for trade finance. Store of value, stocks and bonds, also reserves, official reserves. Unit of account. Uh, a certain barrel of oil is worth how many U.S. dollars, or how, you know, a pound, you know, a gold, how much per pound. You know US dollars. Um, Also foreign exchange rate for official use for unit of account. The US dollar obviously there's heavy use of the US dollar across all three of these functions. In the case of China and in the case of the RMB we do see growing use across these three functions. Also, we see geographic concentration increasingly in the Belt and Road countries. Right there's debate about whether Belt and Road really is serious or not. I think, at least from RM&B internationalization moving forward, Belt and Road will be important. Um, but it is an incremental story still. So far, as of September two thousand twenty, according to SWIFT, the global um, Financial Transactions Tracking System. Um, B is only 1.97% of global payments, of the total global payments, only like 2%. And it's still, and by September 20, like recently, last September 2022, it had reached about 2.5%. So it has increased, but still only 2.5% far behind the u.s at 42.3 percent the euro at 35.2 percent the pound at 6.5 the japanese yen at 2.9 percent jp morgan though recently put out a statement that in by 2030 their prediction is that the renminbi will be number three and it'll probably be somewhere between five to ten percent and my my sense is that's probably a conservative estimate I don't think the RMB will grow to, you know, replace the US dollar in the near to medium term unless there's major crises at the level of world order. But we're probably looking at the RMB somewhere between 5, 10, 15% of global use for payments. And if that happens, that means there will probably be a reduction of some degree in the US dollars use. And it's an interesting question on where the euro. The euro probably will be constant because it's used so much within the euro zone. So it'd be very interesting. And in that scenario, five to 10 years, that means the renminbi would surpass the Japanese yen and the pound to be number three, potentially. And that's my, if people are wondering where do I see this, I often get asked, you know, is the renminbi gonna replace the US dollar, blah, blah, blah. And my answer is, we're probably looking at three currencies operating in a kind of multi-currency scenario. Um, If you look at the People's Bank of China actually puts out a renminbi yearbook, a report every year and if you look across the board you can see that the renminbi according to the People's Bank of China statistics and I believe that they're accurate um, they have no reason to try to misrepresent it um, they may not capture all the flows, though. I think that's the real... So it's still conservative numbers, conservative... But you can see across the board, RMB cross, um, cross-border settlement increased 40, 44.3% year-on-year. On year. And one of the most interesting things is that if you see 2020, halfway th- down the slide, cross-border RMB settlement counted, accounted for 46.2% of China's total cross-border settlement. This is a historical high for China. So in other words, almost half of China's cross-border settlement for trade, investment, and other, um, you know, uh, payments, could be income payments or other types, almost half now is in renminbi, right? So China is driving the process on its own. One of the interesting questions, though, and this is where if you, if in order for the RMB to really kind of take off as a global currency, it also has to be used more by third parties. In other words, where the transaction involves non PRC or non China actors. So, trade between France and Britain, where they use RMB. Or I would argue more likely, trade between African countries or Latin American countries. Let's say. Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Peru, Ecuador, these countries all have China now as the number one trading, export market trading partner or number two. In that scenario, I would argue it makes sense for those Latin American countries to start potentially using renminbi even between themselves, like the way they use the US dollar. Other than for political reasons why they might not want to do it, but for functional reasons, as long as... China manages the value of the renminbi in a fairly stable way, then it would make sense. Right? See that they're, they have China as a major trading partner. Then they would have use for the renminbi, right, that they use between each other. They can also use it for trade with China. So you can see that across the statistics, and I, sorry, I don't want, you don't have to read all this, trading goods, trading services, income current transfers, you see increase use of renminbi across the board. Right. There have been some decreases, but those have been quite minor. And part of this is the COVID period, right? COVID has created great uncertainty. And as you know, China actually did fairly well economically during the first year of COVID, like 2020, 2021. It did fairly well because it recovered rather quickly. It was exporting all kinds of PPE and you know China's exports, you know, were, were very robust for that period. But since in 2022, you can see this year there's been a lot more uncertainty with continuing COVID zero policy, lockdowns in various cities, Shanghai, and major export. This has created some uncertainty and it's also created some dampening effect on foreigners wanting to hold B. Right? is not sure exactly what's going on. Um, nonetheless, you can see that in most cases B use has continued to rise, even through this. It'll be interesting to see what, is, what are the statistics in the next RMB, uh internationalization report, like the 2022 report will give 2021 data, but there's also, if you go online, you know, you look, you Google, you can find quarterly data uh, on B use up until the, you know, the most recent quarter. Um, yeah, and I think Hong Kong has, uh, has, has long been the uh, key settlement hub for RMB using RMB, especially for trade in goods, but also financial tra- transactions, up with Shanghai and Shenzhen, the financial centers in China. Inside the Chinese mainland, but RMB use in goods trade between China and the EU, European Union, has also increased. And I've written about this. If you're interested, we talk about the kind of unique role of the European Union in renminbi internationalization, because we all kind of assume that the renminbi will be used a lot in Asia, the neighboring region of China. But what gets really interesting is when the renminbi use grows in Africa, Latin America, and Europe, right? And that's where it gets very interesting then. Some people have asked me, well, what's the difference between the Japanese yen and the renminbi? Because Japan tried some of this 30 years ago when Japan was the leading trading power in the world. And some people say, well, why should we care? Why should we assume China will be any different than Japan? And why should we assume the, the renminbi has more potential than the Japanese yen as an international currency? And one of the things that the Japanese were never able to really do, they they had a number of constraints and obstacles. Part of this is how much are other regions of the world, not only within Asia, but beyond Asia, willing to use your currency. The EU, there was some Japanese use. Then there's Africa, Latin America, North America as well, and this is where the renminbi seems to be making some more headway in ways that the Japanese yen didn't in the past. So very interesting to think about that comparison as well. But EU and ASEAN, key partners, number two and three for trade settlement. Um, in, in the so-called Capital Council, so financial transactions using the renminbi, right not about trading goods and services but financial for investment for other purposes but financial transactions again here you see major increases in 2020 58.7 percent year-on-year direct investment using remb 37 percent year-on-year increase cross-border pooling business also increases store of value function as I mentioned before the conventional wisdom is that the renminbi cannot make a lot of headway in store of value but here we actually see the beginnings of store of value panda bonds right those are the onshore those are bonds sold by foreign entities in china's bond market listed and sold and traded in china's uh onshore bond market So not in Hong Kong, Singapore, Luxembourg, London, but inside China's bond market. There's been increase in the number of Panda bonds. Now, 2022, this year, there has been a slowdown. Part of that, again, is COVID-related. So part of the interesting question is, you know, eventually, hopefully, as China moves out of the COVID scenario, what is the dominant trend? Right. But also dim sum bonds, that's the bonds sold by companies in the offshore markets, Hong Kong, London, right, renminbi-denominated bonds by companies and World Bank and foreign government. There you see a renew of gro- renewal of growth. They were stagnant for a couple of years, but they're now growing again. And part of this is the search for yield, in other words, return on investment in bonds. In addition to U.S. dollar bonds, which are very attractive, which have high there's high demand for right now. If you look across the various portfolio investment, bond investment, stock investment, you see growth in RMB use, reserve currency. How am I doing, time-wise, Kathy? about eight minutes eight minutes okay i'll speed it up a bit in 2015 2016 the renminbi entered the imf managed special drawing rights reserve basket so five currencies us dollar euro uh british pound japanese yen renminbi the RMB entered that basket in 2015 2016. china had been negotiating for the renminbi's inclusion in that basket took almost a decade of of uh of talks there was a lot of pushback initially but china prevailed in 2015-2016 at the time ben bernanke former chair of the federal reserve of the us said this is empty symbolism it's like a teacher giving the student a gold star <laughs> yeah it's nice but really it's about the mark right not so much the gold star so he kind of blew it off, and so did others. I would argue that's a misreading of things because the renminbi, once it joins the IMF SDR basket, it has become de jure, legally, one of the global's reserve currencies. And it means that central banks around the world will want to hold B because you can exchange it for other reserve currencies and you can pay back your IMF loans in renminbi it's not insignificant, it's not empty symbolism. In this case, it's meaningful symbolism, right? And so, again, it's all, because these things, it's a number of factors you can see coming together, preconditioning the use, the making of an international currency. And so, this is actually quite important. And so here, the RMB, you can see, it it now is ranked fifth, um, and and 70 central banks and monetary authorities around the world are holding REMNB assets. And it's increased uh, within the SDR basket, B holdings, within the IMF they call COFER Currency Composition of Official Foreign Exchange Reserves. The B has been going up as far as holdings. It's still quite low, number five, but it has been going up. You can see the shares of the others at the bottom. I'll go very quickly here, foreign access to onshore foreign exchange markets. This is actually really important. This, this gets at the trading of um, renminbi, foreign exchange, um, where companies intend to use the renminbi more and more for trade, they buy these foreign exchange futures which allow them to hedge their bets on exchange rate changes. And what we're seeing now is more and more purchasing of renminbi-denominated foreign exchange products. And this shows that there is growing demand as well. I was gonna try to talk about this, but I don't think I have time. Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangdong, Jiangsu, inside China who's using, which provinces, where do you see the RMB being used cross-border a lot? So Shanghai seems to be one of the key places, financial hub and key trading center. Beijing, surprisingly, 18.2%. Guangdong, you could argue, involves both Shenzhen, because Shenzhen is inside Guangdong province, right? So this is Guangzhou and Guangdong province, still significant. 14 15 percent geographical use the big blue that's hong kong so international Um, uk is number four singapore is number three the other is a big category so you could bump up in fact singapore and uk two and three after hong kong but you can see it largely it's regional use but you also see germany us it's interesting there's a certain percentage of, of US use that isn't always captured in the statistics France Switzerland fast-growing use in ASEAN last point about functions we're starting to see the rem and be used more and more as a unit of unit of account so for commodities traders palm futures um, crude oil iron ore um, cop- copper you're starting to see China's got very large commodities and trading hubs, uh, commodities and futures trading hubs, gold, Shanghai Gold Exchange. Right. More and more, renminbi denominated assets for uh, futures trading. And so I think we're starting to see also the unit of account. And there is a scholar who makes an argument that, in fact, this will be the real driver of global RMBs partly because China has such large futures commodities trading hubs right that if they allow foreigners to get involved more in them because they've been restricted up until 10 years ago, 5 years ago, if they allow more and more then that will be a major driver Anshan Steel Group and Rio Tinto of Australia agreed yeah. in 2020 to do RMB settlement for 100 million of imported iron ore. So you get a sense of the partners. China, the other thing I mentioned, China's also building the e-infrastructure. Sorry, Kathy, I'll try to do this in five minutes. Necessity is the mother of invention. I've already talked about the Trump factor, US bipartisan support to go hard and tough on China, right? Democrats and Republicans, one of the few things they can agree on go hard on China (laughs) right it's sad but that's the truth Um, Biden has continued a lot of the trade war measures with China and now there's a spin-off into financial Uh, and this and now tech warfare as well denying China access to chips so these things are all driving a sense of necessity the, U- the Ukraine conflict, I mentioned also, serious warning of the Chinese leadership. Where, there, where is there some breakthroughs? And I think this is where it's not only necessity, but growing confidence on the part of the Chinese leadership. The digital yuan, for those who haven't looked at this, the digital yuan is a technical monetary instrument. It's a new line of, mon- of money supply for the RMB. And it facilitates daily transactions at the consumer level and retail. The movement of the digital renminbi arguably also gives the Central Bank of China the capacity to track the movement of the e-renminbi in real time. And to be able to be much more targeted in the delivery of renminbi, for example, on social policy, welfare policy, when they want, one of the issues is during COVID, when there are all these kind of COVID relief programs, government sending checks, they're not even sure who's on the other side for part of the time. This type of central bank digital currency is much more targeted in its ability to deliver money right into accounts. And it strengthens monetary policy and the transmission of monetary policy to citizens and grassroots. Some people would say, though, it also increases the capacity of the state to track and monitor money movements, including of individuals. So there's a concern whether there's increased authoritarianism that could come along with this. What I would argue is that what's so important about this is that this tool, the e-renminbi, or the digital yuan, it gives the Chinese leadership a certain confidence. Right, that One of the c- concerns of the Chinese leadership about renminbi internationalization is that it requires you to let go of a certain degree of control on the flow of your currency, especially globally. And China's leadership has been concerned about the inflationary potential inflationary and financial instability that could come from losing control of the flow of your national currency globally, especially if it flows back massively, hot money inflows in or out of your country. The ability to track the B's flow through the digital Renminbi, digital yuan. I would argue gives government officials a sense of confidence that this could be a tool that allows them to track things much more closely and to prevent instability, to head off, mitigate um, crises linked to money flow. And China already, if you know about Alipay and Tencent, WeChat Pay, already China was far ahead of others around the world in the growth of the digital economy. Digital payment systems. And now, we know that recently there's been some clampdown on some of these innovations and some of the sector, but nonetheless, they've been far ahead. There was also the growth of Bitcoin in the past decade and other forms of cryptocurrency. And not only China, but mo- many of the Asian countries don't like cryptocurrency, right? They see it as nefarious and potentially beyond the control of central banks to manage. And so part of this is China wanted to develop its own central bank digital currency in lieu of cryptocurrency. And they got out ahead. The other thing, too, is this allows China to talk about and pursue de-dollarization, reduce um, reliance on the U.S. dollar, and so, the central bank in China supported this, um, this effort, and a, a number of steps were taken. And I'll jump ahead here, 2020, there were a number, four or five pilots, cities, right, where they, the central bank, through a lottery system, delivered digital RMB into people's digital wallets that they could download onto their phones. The banks in China set up digital wallet to receive digital renminbi and through a lottery system the central bank gifted renminbi to a number of citizens and they like they ran these expand was 10 million renminbi that they gave away in this scenario and they ran pilot programs and it was in a number of key cities and one of the things that so interesting in Shenzhen and Suzhou, you know, these are, these are cities of like 15 million people, 10 million people, okay, sorry, Kathy. Um, you know, they, they were able to deliver this and what's most interesting is in Suzhou, it wasn't just Chinese companies because the people use this digital currency to do their, you know, to buy things retail mcdonald's starbucks a lot of the foreign corporates were all involved part of this is they know the future market for them and so this is kind of a key next step moving forward i think maybe i'll i'll leave some to the I think this is where you'll see in the future the belt and road key hubs will start to emerge for this digital RMB use, including places that we may not have thought of, like Karachi, in Pakistan, and in other centers in the Middle East, Dubai, where they will become key new hubs for RMB use moving forward. Um, I'd just like to say thank you to the Bernie family and to the Mayling Bernie Fellowship again for this opportunity to speak with you. I think this is still an ongoing story, and I think the next five to 10 years will be really important. Just to wrap up, I think this scenario of necessity on the one hand and growing confidence on the part of the Chinese leadership will mean that we will see moves to greater global RMB use in the future. And that helps explain those those news articles that I started with in the beginning. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for such an interesting presentation Dr. Chin. Uh, I hated to hurry you a bit no, except right. that Sorry. Uh, our communications manager was sending me questions from online so I know that there are a lot of questions online and I'm assuming also questions in the room and I wanted to give the audience some, some time to ask you the, the topics that they're especially interested in because we will have to Close up at eight o'clock okay. um, tonight. Sorry about so, that. So, long. no, that's that's kind of right. Um, so, I think I will start with a, a set of questions from online. But if those of you who are in the room, if you have questions, please be ready to raise your hands after we take this initial round, so that people can ask you questions. And again, uh, if, if possible, include your name and affiliation.
2: Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSEIQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
0: So our first question is from uh, Neuralim, uh, and I apologize for any problems I have with pronunciations here. I have one of those names also, which is (laughs) unpronounceable, so I understand the frustrations. Neuralimin Abbas says, custody of financial instruments and assets are overwhelmingly dominated by US financial houses. How does China plan to overcome this? For example, to avoid a similar predicament as the Russian one, Uh, that the Russians are facing when the assets are frozen. So I think that was a theme that came up in your talk also and um, wanting to hear a bit more about that. And then Mark Boland says, it would be great to hear Dr. Chin's views on the potential of the Shanghai Model Plan, which is a a Brady Bond style restructuring of uh, brick and road loans to CNY dominated bonds as suggested by um, Zhou Chengyun. I don't. Did I get that name at all right? I think so, yeah. Director of the Financial Research Institute of the People's Bank of China. Mm -hmm. And then an LSE external alum, Anthony Valion says, sorry, I'm sort of throwing a lot of questions at you very quickly. Um, As well as the Federal Reserve management of the dollar, does the large increase in the last decade in US government debt impact the perception of safe haven status? And if the US was not the sole reserve currency, would it be able to sustain those debt levels?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's a big set of questions for you to start with, and right. then we'll go to the room after for the next round.
1: Okay, thank you, Kathy. Let me start with the third one. I might need you to remind me of the other ones, okay, as yeah. we go. Yeah, I think it's a, huge, it's a huge benefit for the United States to have the global reserve currency, the de facto global reserve currency. At the same time, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy burden and some people have argued that you know, the US maybe should give it up. Fred Bergston has talked about that, and, and others as well, because it costs the US a lot, you know, largely about running current account deficits, trading ballots, not in their favor. The thing is, is that if the US dollar was not the de facto reserve currency, it would mean that the cost of borrowing for the United States would increase significantly and that the US would not be able to um, operate economically, running large debt, and, you know, the way they've been basically doing it for the last while. And so yeah, that, so um, it means a lot to the United States. And I think that's why, in the end, there's still um, an effort to protect by the United States the, the role of the US dollar. When that's ever been called into question, whether it was Barack Obama who was questioned about it, or Donald Trump. They often talk you know come back to no, no, it's important. and um, yeah, um, the second question, I didn't get all of the detail on that. It's a fairly technical and detailed question.
0: Um, yeah, and if there's something that you're not prepared to speak to, that's fine. we can it looks like there are plenty of questions. Yeah, I might
1: I might just take a sorry, a pass on that unless I, I can something comes to mind on on the details of, of that particular scheme that the um, audience member was asking about. Um, Can you go back to the first question, Kathy? Yeah,
0: so the first one was saying, the custody of financial instruments and assets are overwhelmingly dominated by US financial houses. Right. So how does China overcome that? Yeah,
1: so one of the things that, there's a couple of things. Um, A lot of, China has the advantage that it's big four banks, are four of the largest in the world right so um, icbc uh, bank of china china construction bank agriculture bank of china they also handle large amounts of us dollar transactions so they if they were denied access to us dollars or if they were denied the ability to access the dollar payment system you would have the beginnings of, I would argue, a financial crisis. Mm. And if you get into the situation, there's, China also has a potential currency bomb that they could use, which is potentially to dump those US dollars. Mm. I don't think they wanna do that, right? Because it would be majorly destabilizing and and it's their wealth, their national wealth that they've built up, right? So they don't wanna do that. In that regard, I think China and Russia are different. Mm. Right. And I'm not saying that Russia necessarily wants to dump all its U.S. dollars, but they actually want to get access to it. But, you know, this is where I think China, there is a market element to the Chinese thinking. They understand markets, you know, there's planning in markets and they kind of get it. So I think part of the it's an interesting question, what the audience members ask. I think part of what the the question is, is how far China's banks themselves see profit in using the RMB more and more too for international trade. So part of none of those figures on RMB internationalization could have happened unless China's big banks are driving it. They're at the center of it. Right? Still more of the majorities in US dollars, but the, there is a growing amount of so the, the question to focus in, so, so my research really has tried to look at the role of China's big banks in Renminbi internationalization, because they'd be some of the key domestic political economy actors. And if you want to look at winners and losers in political economy, then that would be a key focus. Yeah,
0: thanks. I think this is where we often come in questions about China, that there is simply an, an issue of scale. That's right. The size of China means that things are simply different for it. Exactly. <laughs> they are for exactly. many of the other countries of the world. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you for the, that initial round. Um, are there questions from the audience in the room? I see in the front row, and then in the blue sweater there, and then in the, in the blue jacket there. So start with the, the person here in the green sweater in the front. I don't know if those mics work or not, so go ahead.
2: Um, thank you for your presentation, uh, Dr. Chin. Uh, my name is uh, Santiago and uh, I am a Master of uh, Public Policy from Oxford University. And uh, <coughs> My question is, um, with uh, the recent victories of uh, Lula in Brazil and uh, Petro in Colombia, um, do you think that the shift that uh, the region has taken to the left, do you think that it will be a major catalyst for uh, the RMB and uh, the... And, the, and, the, and beyond that, do you think that uh, the United States will have uh, uh, any response or will take any actions uh, based on, on, on the influence that uh, China is uh, gaining on the region? Thank you.
0: Thank you. And. The Woman, yeah, if you can raise your hand there. We had a very interesting time about seven or eight years ago when I went with Greg to Beijing, and then I took him to Brazil with me. So (laughs) he has been in Brazil and uh, thought it was a great trip. Yes, (laughs) that's right. Yes, go ahead.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Professor Chen, for your presentation. Um, I'm Penny from um, the University of Cambridge. I'm doing an MPhil in Latin American Studies. I noticed that you skipped uh, the slides uh, on e-infrastructure, which is, which is actually uh, where my question <laughs> would <laughs> originate from. Um, so I was reflecting upon my research on AliPay Plus um, a couple of years ago. So AliPay Plus is basically a platform for PayPals and um, um, different. Payment tools in different countries. It's first launched in ASEAN countries, which allows basically tourists to um, pay the business, uh, pay the local business without downloading their um, their uh, uh, other payment tools. Um, so my question is, um, what do you see the private sector's role, or especially the tech sector? in RMB internationalization. Thank you. Oh, and also I have another question, sorry. Um, uh, you mentioned that um, in a quite distant future, there will be a metrics of three currencies standing um, in the um, world currency order. Um, I'm speculating, uh, less, maybe less weaponization, and maybe more regional integration. So I want to know um, what's your take on that. Thank you, that'll be all.
0: Thank you for that. And we'll complete this round then with the person in the center. Test. Hi, um, I'm Meta, um, Geography, Economics, um, BSc at LSE. Um, just want to get your comments on the effectiveness of the digital, digital yuan. In contributing to the
2: internationalization of the Riming B, given that China has one of the most stringent measures of cross-border data flows.
1: Yeah. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yeah, thank you for your question about uh, uh, Lula and Latin America. Kathy is probably better, uh, you know, suited, uh, equipped to answer your question. Um, feel free to jump in, Kathy, at any point. I'm happy to defer to you. No, no, go ahead. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think Lula's return is very interesting. And I think Latin America, and it's, Brazil is huge, right, so it's so important. Um, And I think, interestingly, Bolsonaro also, you know, he, I think he came into office leaning towards Trump, but he came to realize BRICS and China were quite important for Brazil. And so he started to shift, and, and um, he did put a lot of emphasis on relations with China, uh, economic relations. And it'll be interesting to see how much more leeway Lula does or does not have. It's a pretty slim victory that he had. Brazil's digging out of a pretty difficult economic situation, right? So we'll see. But I think it's not, if Brazil is important moving forward for... RMB use internationally, but also Chile, Argentina. Argentina's talking about applying to join the BRICS and the NDB, right, which is the, the BRICS-led new development bank, in, headquartered in Shanghai. It's fascinating, right? There's a number of countries, Argentina's one of them. But Peru, Ecuador, they all have a lot of relations with China. So I could see potential in Latin America. The challenge, of course, is the relationship with the United States and how that plays out. But I think under the Biden administration, there appears now to be a bit of a shift towards some cooperation with China, at least in the G20 meetings. That seems to be the talk. So competition definitely, but also some cooperation. So we'll see how much leeway the Latin American countries have. You know, the United States has a way of letting those countries and Canada know what the red lines are. And we'll find out. Right? It'd be very interesting what those are. But I think having Lula there would be quite interesting because traditionally he's been very supportive of BRICS. So thank you for your question. Um, Penny, uh, it, and I'm very grateful. I have Oxford students, Cambridge, and LSC. Thank you. Um, Penny, it's a great, I think you probably know more about this area of study than I do. So thank you very much for your question. Um, I think. The role of the private sector it's important it's really quite important both as a actor driver of supply and demand uh, for the RMB, and then definitely in the development of e payment systems and the digital digital renminbi i think quite important we do see some curtailing of the room for alibaba tencent others to operate um I think that the central bank has felt the need to kind of bring them under some degree of greater regulatory control, that they had grown too big and in some ways perhaps too independent. And But now that I think they've been kind of brought back in, um, it'll be interesting to see whether you know they'll be given room to drive and innovate again. I think in the fintech, in the development of financial technology, blockchain, and the areas like the technology, the plumbing needed to do digital RMB, the private sector is very important as far as, you know, innovator. Um, And I think what will be interesting now is we'll see, I think the central bank in China is trying to give life to new joint ventures. So not just Alibaba and Tencent, but new companies to also... Partner with, for example, provinces in China, Guangdong, like in Shenzhen area, um, Jiangsu, Suzhou, where you see kind of three way joint ventures, where you see a private fintech provider, blockchain provider, combined with some new kind of state data managers, Mm -hmm. you know, management companies, so that you ensure a public private dimension so that the regulators are somewhat okay with it. And so I think that that's where the future probably lies, including as China innovates more with Singapore and with Malaysia and others in this area of uh, digital currency. So that's in a nutshell what I think. um, Your regional question is really fascinating. I think the next five years is really important to see whether we head into a world where we end up with two or three kind of blocks, rival blocks, trading blocks. With all the talk in Canada about homeshoring from the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland, and Janet Yellen, Financial Secretary in the US, uh, Treasury Secretary, the talk of kind of just trading with, or trading with more with your friends. Uh, this is a trend that suggests potential breakup of globalization. Um, but at the same time, it's not so easy to deglobalize, even in sensitive sectors like mining, where electric vehicles, moving forward, seem to be really important, and the batteries for those EVs, the rare earths, the big corporates globally that do the mining for that stuff. They don't want to be in a world where they can only trade with one side or the other. They want to be able to trade with the, you know, China and the US. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how those corporates influence government policy, even among the great powers moving forward. I don't so the next five years I think are quite important to see the degree of deglobalization and The unfortunate scenario, I would argue, from a kind of progressive globalism standpoint or cosmopolitan progressive standpoint, would be if we do end up in a world of rival trade blocs, kind of like Cold War, and where we only talk about bridges between the rival blocs. That would be, I think, quite dangerous, including from a military standpoint. Sorry, could you ask your question one more time? The third question. My apologies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask, like, um, you got to comment on the effectiveness of digital yuan in internationalizing, like, the RMB. Yeah. Um, given that China has one of the most stringent um, measures of cross-border
2: data flows in the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So thank you for that question. So, yeah, given the controls, right? I think one of the interesting questions that have been asked uh, to the people in China who are doing the innovation, like who are creating this digital RMV was do you see, how much international use do you see, right, like right now the systems for the E, E the digital, mainly inside China. Mm. How much do you see it being used for international use, global use? And the argument that's coming from the, from the innovators, and behind them I would think the central bank, is that it should be determined by market demand. Right? There's no point in just creating these systems if there's no demand for it. So if Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, um, you know, if they want to do it, if they want to use the digital yuan to, for trade and investment, okay. Let's, let's do it. But if there's no demand, there's no point in forcing other people. You can't force other people to use it, All right? So I think that's really important. One of the things that link to innovation, Huawei, I understand is in some of the new latest models of the Huawei phone, they have built into them the capability to use digital RMB. And so that will create potentially uh, another part of the architecture, infrastructure, systems, to um, allow for this. Right. So I think part of what I talked about is the confidence that comes from the digital RMB is the ability to track the flow. Right. So if they have greater, if the leaders have, the governing officials have greater confidence that they can track the flow and prevent financial instability, then they may be more willing to allow this to happen moving forward. So thank you for your question.
0: Well, we're very nearly out of time, but this is a rare time that Greg is in London. So I'm gonna ask you one last question from online that you should expect in London. This is Maida, David Harries, who's a visitor to LSE from London. What are the implications for the city of London as a central provider of financial services? And we'll take that as the last question and wrap up with that
1: then. Yes, I think that's a great question. And in 2011-2012 when it was the coalition government of David Cameron and the Liberal Party George Osborne then the chancellor of the exchequer he was put a lot of support behind the role of london as an rmb hub but we know in the last since that coalition government there've been a lot of tensions inside the conservative party and growing across the West about what should the UK's relationship be with China Right, and I think we could say a more hawkish position has emerged more, more talk about security concerns and things of that nature and I'm not saying it's unfounded I'm just saying that's the empirical fact um, that then leaves the question of you know those innovations I personally think I mean how I visited the City of London, I talked to the people of the City of London Corporation about these things back in 2011-12, and it was very clear from their standpoint, like how do you stay as a global financial centre for 800 years, City of London? You have to be able to adjust with the times, adjust with the global reality. And I would think that for the City of London, it will want to stake out a position and a role in these innovations that we've just talked about. Um, Because whether London is or isn't involved, others will be. And so I would say that I would think it would be in British national interests, economically for sure. And where the financial services sector is so important, as far as Britain's GDP, that it's important that the city of London be able to position itself for some of these innovations. So I think it's very important. We'll see, I guess, what the internal dynamics of conservative party politics have to say about that. But I think that there are reasonable, rational economic reasons for Britain to think seriously about its role, City of London and RMB.
0: Well, it's been a great pleasure for me to have had Dr. Gregory Chin here and I think for all of you as well. So please join me in thanking him. And thank you to all of you who joined us here in the room and also joined us online. We appreciate your being here. Very grateful you could find time in your busy schedule and your busy schedule to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening.